in the words of the famous Carl Sagan, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. Decollage liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. It took about two decades to develop the world's largest space telescope, NASA's James Webb Telescope. And right now, there is a very active and also quite political competition going on in the scientific community about designing the next great space telescopes to be launched in the coming decades. Those telescopes will discover incredible things that are just waiting to be known. My guest today is among those scientists that develop concepts for the space telescopes of, the, of tomorrow. He has called this process mysterious, exciting, and also something that even most scientists don't really comprehend. I'm certainly excited to learn more about how scientists develop the next generation of space telescopes. My name is Thomas Schumann, and you are listening to a podcast that I call Schumann's Romarket in Danish, my native language. I guess that roughly translates to Schumann's space rocket. My guest today is a fellow countryman, Klaus Pontopidan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You were a project scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore for eight years where you worked on the development and the commissioning of the James Webb Space Telescope. Currently, uh, you have just uh, switched jobs to uh, work at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Laboratory in Pasadena, California, where you develop uh, the space telescopes of the future. Um, but uh, before we go on to your work uh, currently today, just to introduce you uh, and what kind of how vital you were in the development of the Webb Telescope, Am I am I correct in remembering that you were actually perhaps the first person to see the very first images from uh, the James Webb t- Space Telescope? Um, yes, you were correct in in the sense of the first science images. Um, uh, I I played a, a core role in in making those first color images that went around the world, showcasing what uh, the James Webb Space Telescope could do. Uh, very early on, and of course now we are a couple of years into the science mission, and we see lots of exciting science results. But those were the first sort of glimpses, or maybe even more than glimpses, you might say, of how amazing that telescope was and is. I, I have in my memory uh, a picture of you sitting also in the Oval Office with uh, President Joe Biden uh, talking about these pictures. But I don't know if this is just something I, I misremember. I think it's something you dreamt. Um, I was uh, I was somewhat involved. Um, uh, uh, one of the things I, uh, that happened early on was, of course, that uh, when we had those first images coming out for James Webb, like a week before we we, we thought we'd reveal them to the world, uh, we did get a notification from the White House that, uh, that President Biden wanted to to reveal the first one of them. So we got very excited about that. Um, and that did happen the day before we revealed all the other images. And, and my role that day was to uh, to deliver the images to NASA headquarters, which is sort of just down the road from the White House. So that was where I was. Um, I handed it over to the uh, the administrator of NASA, uh, Bill Nelson, who used to be a senator, uh, before that they went to the White House uh, to show them to, to the president. Um, they hadn't seen them before the images, and so I so I had to, of course, explain to them, in layman's terms, uh, what they what they were, and and give them a script for what to what to tell the president. Um, and so you probably uh, see images see. from that event. Yeah, I must have uh, mistaken uh, Bill Nelson in my memory with Joe Biden. They're also about the same age, uh, you know, uh, politicians, both of them. Uh, at least uh, Bill Nelson has a history of being a politician also yeah that's right yeah both uh, both elderly <laughs> uh white-haired men <laughs> yes, <laughs> Easy exactly. to, to mistake. well um, of course today is not going to be about uh, that kind of politics but rather about uh, perhaps the politics of uh, designing future space telescopes as i said you work currently at uh, nasa's jet propulsion uh, laboratory where you are um, helping develop the space telescopes of the future Uh, which I think is is quite exciting. Uh, you wrote to me uh, when we were 
uh, talking about uh, this uh, uh, podcast uh, before that there's currently a competition going on right now about the design of the next great space telescopes. Can you talk a bit about that competition that is currently going on in the scientific community? Yeah, so, um, well, maybe we have to step back a, a little bit and um, just remind ourselves that there are different kinds of space telescopes from the point of view of, of NASA. And we're, we're just really talking about how things happen in the United States. Uh, the, the European Space Agency has, for instance, has its own has its own process. There are there are some space telescopes that are competed, which means that there may be a pot of money and um, different ideas for what it should be, and you actually write full proposals um, and submit full proposals, and there will be separate pro several proposals, um, and those will be competed in the sense that you only pick one. Um, there are also assigned missions. And the, the assigned missions are typically the huge ones, the flagship ones, like James Webb, for example, is, is an assigned mission. Um, and, and the next one that's coming up is, is, an, is an assigned mission, too. Um, so those are strictly competed. There's a, there's a different process for deciding what the, the, those big flagship missions are. And then uh, NASA essentially selects who builds them. Um, and so both of those activities are ongoing at the moment in the United States based on uh, a document that is uh, written once a decade, once every 10 years, um, and is commissioned by uh, NASA to the National Academy of Sciences in the United States. Right? The National Academy is a collection of, uh, uh, I guess, what's considered um, experienced and wise uh, scientists, including astronomers. Um, and so they do one for astronomy, um, and that makes a recommendation for what NASA should spend its money on for, for astrophysics um, in the coming decade. And so everything right now is following a recommendation of the uh, what's called a decadal survey of 2020. So that, that came out in 2021, and it made a number of recommendations. And one of the recommendations is for a new flagship mission, um, and uh, other recommendations are for what kind of smaller missions, but still very significant, should be competed. And uh, I, I read a bit about uh, the this decadal survey uh, you're talking about here. Uh, I read the, the summary of it. Uh, as far as I could see, uh, there are like three themes to the decadal survey, uh, things that the astronomers and astrophysicists uh, would like to know about in the future. Uh, and... Those themes are first the formation and evolution of stars and planets, as well as also the habit, habit, sorry, habitability uh, of the planets. Um, then there is the formation and evolution of galaxies, and lastly also the dynamics of black holes, neutron stars, uh, neutron star mergers rather, as well as uh, dark matter and uh, dark uh, energy. Um, so. It's coming on, on the back of this decadal uh, survey. And what is it that then, because th that decadal survey was published in, in, 2020, uh, in 2020, what is going on right now in the scientific community? What is the work that you're currently doing on designing uh, the future space telescopes? So, um, yeah, it's a very, very active thing is happening right now. So I'm personally mostly involved in, uh, in the competed mission. So the the Cale recommended uh, a line that's called they call the uh, the probe line or explorer line, um, and so that is the size of mission that is uh, sort of billion dollar class, not ten billion dollar but billion dollar class mission. The reason I'm doing that um, primarily is that you know I've, I worked on a on a on a generational mission, you know, one that took twenty five years. Um, I'm forty six now. Uh, I'd like to see the. Uh, I'd like to be involved in a project that I can see the the end of, and so the probes are are intended to be launched in the mid twenty thirties. So I have sort of one good shot left in my career, and so that, that's where I'm applying myself. Um, so I'm I'm part of one of the concepts um, that have already been submitted uh, for a probe mission, and then that is in competition with a number of other other probes at the moment. When you say probe mission, what do you mean by probe? Normally, when I hear uh, 
probe in relation to space science. I think of uh, probes going to Venus or probes going to Mars. But uh, space telescopes, they are normally, you know, in, in orbit around the Earth. I don't normally think of those as probes, but maybe I haven't heard them heard this term being used in this uh, context before. Yeah, no, so this is just what they've decided to call them because um, they're different sizes. Uh, so they basically, NASA, uh, basically divides uh, missions into sizes. Size, size means how much money, how much they cost. Um, and a reason for doing that is to ensure that they have what they call a balanced portfolio. Um, so you want to balance that in in science, the science you can do. You want to balance that in um, in the wavelengths of light that you see. You know whether it's uh, you know, using visible light or infrared light or radio or X-ray or whatever. Um, and then uh, in, in, in size as well, so that you can have small ones that are faster and large ones that may take, take longer. Um, and so probe is just, uh, it's just a word for the size. They have, they have small explorers, uh, they have mid-sized explorers, and a probe is like a large explorer. And then on top of that, they have the flagships. So, so the concept you're working on, can you tell us a bit about uh, what, what it is, what uh, that entails? Yeah, so the, the Decadal Survey, um, the 2021, recommended um, that there would be a probe, but that that probe had to be um, exploring either um, X-ray light, X-rays, or what's called a far infrared. Far infrared is, uh, is infrared, right? So it's redder than visible light. Um, so you have visible light, you have infrared light where, where um, James Webb, for example, operates. And then far infrared is even redder than what James Webb does. Um, and so I'm involved in one of the far infrared concepts. What's exciting and important about the far infrared is that, uh, that possibly most of the normal light in the universe exists in the far infrared. Um, so it's a huge area of the electromagnetic spectrum of light that if you if you don't have access to it, um, you don't know where and what most of the stuff in the universe is. You're missing most of the light. Um, and so that gives us some unique um, scientific opportunities. Um, so, for example, it's really good at, at uh, uh, looking at things like water. So if you're interested in how water gets to potentially habitable worlds. You probably need to find infrared to do that. Um, also, if you're interested in where elements come from and when they were formed, right? so elements formed in stars and galaxies in the far distant past, um, it turns out that, that most elements that exist today were formed probably about 10 billion years ago. But we don't really know this for sure because a lot of this formation of elements happens in very obscured region, regions that are, are covered in lots of dust. And so you need the, uh, you need the far infrared range to, to really see that at those distances. And so a far infrared mission can tell us uh, when and how um, the elements of the normal elements of the world when they formed, you know, what you and I made out of the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the sulfur, and so on. And I know that's also, uh, that also relates to your uh, background as a scientist. Uh, I could read that you, you are known for extensive work into the evolution of uh, water and other volatiles in the, in the universe. So, so this uh, telescope that you're working on, yeah, it can, it can look for both the elements that you and I are made from, from but also perhaps is what, what I'm hearing also try to tease out the habitability around other planets. Yes, yeah, so it won't look at the planets themselves, uh, but it will, it will give us an understanding of, of, of how planets formed and in particular how they potentially got their, their water, right? So it's a, sort of a key question in, in inhabitability is we look at our own solar system, we look at our own Earth and we'll ask, well, I mean, obviously we're here, right? But uh, whenever we look at, at planets around other stars, at exoplanets, they look really nothing like the solar system. Uh, the architecture is all different. You know, the giant planets are close to the stars. Uh, you know, they, they, they are, they're all placed in different places. They look like they're made differently. And so we got to ask, how common is uh, a solar system, really? And uh, will it have 
rocky planets like the Earth at the right distance from the star? And if it does, will those planets have water on them? Um, and so one of the ways you can get at that, of course, is you can try and measure that on planets like that. That's, that's very difficult to do. It's, by the way, another story that we may be able to talk about. Um, but you can also look at uh, uh, the time when they were actually formed um, and see if the ingredients uh, are available in the material that planets are actually forming out of. And one of the things we find already with Webb, for example, is that there's plenty of water everywhere. Um, and so we have a much better idea that, that water is probably common, uh, but you need to find for it to, to really um, say that for sure. Now, you said that this uh, probe, this telescope, is uh, in a smaller class uh, that would uh, be able to be developed within, uh, within your career. Uh, so what are we talking about? When, when do we expect that uh, this telescope might be launched? Yeah, so the, the timeline for the probes is actually set. Um, so it will be uh, around 2035. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. So what is that? 11 years. It's actually a very short fuse for these. Uh, some might say it's a little concerning that there's so little time. Uh, one of the things it means is that um, it's limited how much new technology that you, you can require for your mission. But, but I guess it's better than... For instance, uh, or at least in your case, if you, if you, uh, you said you spent so much time on web, um, that took about two decades to develop. So what is uh, 2035? That's a little more than 10 years. Yeah, you might say even that, that web took even more than that. It, so the, the first uh, sort of real serious thoughts about it was in the mid-90s. So I think almost 25 years. Yeah, I find this process uh, of of designing the telescopes uh, fascinating. And and you told me before the, our conversation here that that this competition about the telescopes is quite political. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, it's natural, right? That um, uh, whenever you build a, a telescope or an observatory, you can't do everything, right? You gotta you gotta you gotta pick what it does. It's it's sort of a, it's a, it can do limited things, um, and. So And astronomy, astrophysics, um, the science you might might do is very broad. The types of wavelengths you might look like is look at is very broad, and so um, you can really um, um, you will have different subgroups within astronomy fighting for their science and their wavelength region. Right, they can't all win, um, and of course that becomes a political process. Um, all the science or Is, is exciting, right? So how do you decide what is the most the most exciting science? Um, and so the process is in place for trying to decide that, but there's inevitably, there's winners and losers. So that would be, for instance, uh, the team that you are representing, if we could call it that, the uh, far infrared team versus the X-ray uh, guys. Is that is that sort of how to understand it? Yeah, so that, that, that's one axis, of course. Um, uh, Hopefully, for the for the somewhat smaller missions, right? There's because there there there's shorter time in between. Um, you can, you know, you don't have to wait as long for the next potential opportunity. Um, so so there's that. There's also um, there's also forces that say, well, you know, what we should really argue for for having multiple observatories coming at the same time. Um, scientific reasons for that you let's say you, you discover a new exciting object in space um astrophysical objects don't care what telescope you have they emit light in in on all wave bands and so as it turns out no surprisingly you do much better science if you have access to to different kinds of light at the same time right? so there are scientific reasons for that of course money is not inf infinite so so there's there's that issue um i think the, the bigger the bigger Um, sort of competition problems or, or issues come in with the flagships because these are generational, right? And so you do, you decide to do one one type of flagship, you're not going to do the other ones for a generation. So um, people will make or break their career based on, on that, that choice. You also call this process mysterious and also something that the scientists might not fully understand. Uh, can you elaborate on that? How, how can that be? Um, well, so uh, what I mean there is that it is, I mean, maybe, maybe it's, it's not a surprise, but it, it is an incredibly 
complex and I guess arcane process to uh, to decide, but not just decide, but to develop um, a concept for a telescope. Um, you don't just decide typically, um, especially not for a competed project um, based on a few pages of text. Um, typically, when you enter a competition for a mission, actually this goes for Mars missions too, or probes, or any, any other thing you might do. Um, these are fully designed uh, projects um, with, uh, where you have, you have, you have list, uh, lists of all the components, uh, you know, what they're made of. Um, you have, you have models of, 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 of the thermals, like how hot they get, how much power they use, the wiring, everything is, is designed and specified in great detail before you can get to even thinking about being selected. Um, and then you have to do all that and you have to figure out how much it costs um, because, again, it's limited money uh, for the probes, the mid-size, the small size. These all have cost caps imposed by NASA. As I say, a probe, for example, is a billion dollars. You can't spend more than that. Um, and so you have to fit. You know, you want to do a certain amount of science. You design something about it. And, oh, oops, it, it turns out it costs $2 billion. You know, what do you do? Um, and so it becomes this process of shrinking it and you know, trying to figure out how you can make it cheaper, uh, still do the science, um, and on and on and on. And so it becomes actually a very stressful process involving lots of engineers and many people involved. There's lots of money involved in, in just writing these, these proposals. Um, so I guess that, that's, that's what I mean, right? So I think most people you know, probably don't have um, really a concept for how these, these, these things are done or decided, but it's, it's even just submitting proposals can be a years long process. It's one reason it takes a long time. Um, you have to figure out if you need new technology, right? You don't just pull a space telescope off a shelf in a store. Um, you often need to, it's not easy, right? Otherwise somebody would have done it already. So you, you often need to develop new technology. Um, maybe you have to develop a new type of detector. You have to figure out how to keep things cold um uh, maybe you even need a new orbit in space you have to calculate that um uh, yet you are afforded um, a limited amount of new technology if you come up with a constant say oh well, we have to develop you know brand new technology like if you play played a, a video game like uh, like civilization that has a tech tree right you can uh you can come up with a mission that requires kind of future technology that you don't even know how to do um, so, so you have to develop it so it fits in the right spot. So it's ambitious. You can do really exciting science, but it can't be too ambitious and you have to fit within the cost cap. So as you can imagine, it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, detailed, complex and sometimes stressful uh, process. I guess what the goal is for the scientists is that, uh, this discussion about cost is not a discussion that is brought up in Congress where the politicians are going to then uh, decide on whether or not the, the, the whole project should go forward. We've seen various uh, examples of this uh, in history with NASA, where big projects, I think it was, for instance, the International Space Station, it came down to one vote or something like that, that saved that, uh, that whole project. And, and similarly, uh, you wouldn't want a space telescope like this uh, to have a balloon that budgets, uh, or sorry, a, a budget that balloons uh, so much that uh, the politicians uh, take notice and might discuss the cancellation of it. Yeah, no, no, cer certainly not. I mean, that's another uh, difference between though between these competed and um, assigned projects that I talked about. Right? Because if you have a competed project, once you go in, you right, you've already thought about the cost very carefully. I think those are those are easier to keep within a cap. Whereas flagship missions, because they're not competed. Um, may sometimes have, have a little bit more of a struggle. Those are also the ones that the U.S. Congress looks at, right? So there's basically around a billion dollars, if it's less than, at a billion dollars or less, um, Congress doesn't really notice that so much anymore. Um, for those, uh, NASA astrophysics basically just get a, gets a bundle of money, right? It gets a budget, which is about one and a half to two billion dollars a year at the moment for astrophysics. Um, the budget for crewed spaceflight, for example, is much bigger for NASA. But astrophysics is, is only like one, one to one and a half, oh, one and a half to two billion dollars a year. So they just say you have that much money, 
and then uh, NASA will try to implement the recommendations of the uh, decadal survey within that budget as well as it can. So, so Congress is not necessarily going to go and line item all these smaller missions. The flagship missions they will, they will look at. And probably the next flagship mission we get, uh, I'm guessing, will require um, some extra allocation from, from Congress in order to pay for it because it's going to be very expensive. I think I read something about the the next flagship mission uh, within the um, astrophysics uh, department uh, from from the decadal uh, survey. As far as I could uh, tease out from the summary, it's a, a telescope that would cost in the order of eleven billion dollars uh, to develop. And as far as I remember, they they write about a, a six meter aperture uh, telescope that would be able to observe both in infrared optical and also x-rays and what i get that to be is so that's basically a bigger version of of hubble am i am i right about that um uh yes sort of um so what you're talking about is what they call now call the habitable worlds observatory so that name is relatively recent um the idea has been around for a long time um that has been driven by one very specific science case and that is to find and then characterize an earth-sized planet around a solar mass star orbiting at an earth-sized distance from a star so essentially earth 2.0 um, that has been the key requirement um, uh, once you You build a telescope like that that functions in the in the near infrared optical and, and UV not not X-rays is that UV ultraviolet. Um, it uh, of course you have a fantastic observatory for general astrophysics that would be similar to Hubble just just bigger um, in capabilities, but it really is driven by this need to to discover and characterize Earth 2.0. Now of course we don't know any Earth 2.0 at the moment, right? So. So this telescope would both have to discover it and then make measurements that can determine what uh, its atmosphere is made of. And and that's then the kind of project that would take about 15 years, 20 years to develop. Yeah, at least. Um, uh, if you if you read carefully, the recommendation is that they understand that uh, the technology for this is not ready and the money is not there yet. So what they're doing with it right now is uh, is what they call technology development. Uh, so just trying to figure out what it would take um, uh, to build it, to start to think about what the key technologies are, start working on developing them. Um, and then really by the beginning of the next decade, 2030, I'll get to a point where they will know if they can build it or not. Um, that's always a little bit dangerous. Um, it's happened before. Like if, if you make a mission, uh, Or if you start a mission that that isn't quite ready yet, and you say, "Oh, we will we'll spend some time for technology development," um, it uh, it may die in, in that technology development. However, this one, Habitable Worlds, has a lot of it's a lot of political uh, momentum. A lot of uh, lot of people who are really excited about this and really want to see it happen. Um, so I'm guessing it's going to happen one in one way or another. Whether it's going to be able to fulfill this objective of finding a 2.0, which is very exciting, I think remains to be seen. When you say that it has a lot of uh, people backing it, is that both within the scientific community and also uh, within, let's say, the political community, people in Congress, for instance, that are willing to, you know, step up every time and, and provide it funding through, uh, you know, the coming years? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so certainly in the in the astronomical community, um, they have, it has a lot, a lot of backing. Um, um, whether it has sufficient backing in Congress, um, you know, I can't say. Um, I, uh, you know, it's always a little bit difficult to figure out what they what they might think. Uh, what is true is that um, the uh, the politicians in Congress who uh, who helped hobble along the way and who helped James Weber along the way are not there anymore, right? They've retired. And so would have to find new champions in Congress. Um, and so again, that remains to be seen. 
Um, you said it, it, the price tag was $11 billion. I don't think we know what the price tag is because they haven't, um, they haven't quite figured out all the technologies. Um, I suspect it will be bigger than that. But you know what the number is? It's, it's hard to predict. And I don't want to make too specific predictions about the future, but it will be a lot of money, I think. If we look at the, the field more broadly, Uh, so you're working on on this uh, infrared telescope, and we talked about the flagship mission here. There will both be infrared, optical, and and in the UV. But if we look at the field more broadly, what what else do the scientists feel that is missing uh, in ty- in in terms of types of telescopes and things that we should be able to see to answer these uh, questions that have been raised in the decadal survey? Well, I would, of course, argue that one of the things that are missing is our foreign friend um, telescope. Um, I mean, a key reason for that is that there isn't actually anything else in the foreign friend in existence or planned. So if we don't get a foreign friend telescope as a probe, uh, what may happen is that there's, uh, there's nothing else around. This requires very special uh, special technology to do, um, but if there's no work for the experts in this, the experts go away. And then once 20, you know, 20 years in the future, you decide, oh, we actually really needed this, that knowledge and expertise no longer exists and you have to start all over. Um, I do think that uh, uh, we need to think about uh, a new optical telescope. We do have Hubble at the moment, but Hubble is 35 years old. I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible age when you think about it for that kind of mission. It's not going to live forever. Um, the visible range is a, is a key um, um, you know, key type of light for, for us, no matter how you do. So if Hubble goes away, you really do need some kind of replacement for that. Um, but, uh, but I am also a huge proponent of trying to have a balanced portfolio and covering many wavelength ranges. I think no matter what question you're thinking about, whether it's It's exoplanets, or it's the origins of galaxies, or it's kilonova, you know, or the origins of elements, or whatever it may be. Uh, it turns out that you need more than one telescope and need more than one one wavelength. And and our challenge as an as astrophysicists and astrophysics community is to convince politicians and the public. At the end of the day, we live in democracy here in the U.S. Um, uh, convince the public that this is money well worth spent. Um, and in the grand scheme of things. Um, not that much for for what you get. Uh, you know, once you get the knowledge and the data down, they never they never go away. Even if the telescope itself is retired, um, you have that um, you know, in uh, on on Earth um, and in our minds forever. So let's look at this. Uh, you know, the the far infrared uh, telescope that 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 you are uh, working on uh, to realize. What kind of are there any kind of technolo- technological breakthrough advances that need to be made in order to realize uh, this telescope? Um, yeah, so the in the far infrared, there are um, there are two uh, key challenges, usually. One is that the telescope has to be cold. This was a thing for JWST as well. Um, it had to be a t- cold telescope, um, but it had to... Uh, not be that cold. It, uh, the mirror of James Webb is about 45 degrees above absolute zero, which may seem cold. Um, right, so about minus 230 degrees Celsius. Um, and the reason an infrared telescope has to be cold is that any any material, including the mirror, emits light. Um, and if it's cold, relatively cold, it emits still emits infrared light. If it's very cold, it stops emitting light at all. At all, at least very little infrared light. So if it's not cold, it's like observing an infrared. It's like observing a broad daylight. So it's it's uh, uh, like imagine if you live on a planet that is has an orbit, has a rotation that is bound to its star, and you live on the day side, and you never never seen the night side. You have no idea there was a Milky Way and stars out there, and then you have you know an explorer so travels around to the other side, and suddenly sees the night sky you know, in complete darkness and realizes there's a universe out there. Um, that's sort of the difference between having a warm infrared telescope and a cold infrared telescope. Once you got into the far infrared, uh, it's not enough anymore to be 45 degrees above absolute zero. We have to be about four and a half degrees above absolute zero to be cold enough. 
um, and so it requires technology to to keep it that that cold, uh, which we have. Um, um, but but it is always a technological challenge. The other is the the detectors, right? So the cameras that I, that work in the far infrared. Um, obviously, in in the visible, the detectors are very well known. Uh, they're in every um, every cell phone camera. In fact. Astronomers uh, originally developed the detectors for astronomical purposes that ended up in, in, in your digital camera and in your cell phones today. So that technology was to, was to, to a large part driven by astronomers. Uh, in the near-infrared in the or in infrared where, where um, JWST operates, there's also um, interest uh, from other places in astronomy which helped develop this sort of detector. Uh, so they're used um, you know, for the, in the thermal infrared, they're used for... for, you know, for um, um, infrared cameras that see through fog and, and in the dark. And of course, it's used for military purposes. So there's money there. Once you've gotten to the far infrared, there's really no, no other um, uh, big usage of that kind of detector. So astronomers have to develop them from scratch. And I can tell you, if, if you ever, ever want to experience something as close to black magic as you can as you, as you can imagine, it, it's a, it's detector development, and in particular something like fine for detectors. I'm still, you know, I understand some of that physics and technology, but I'm still kind of mystified, uh, you know, how some of that how some of that stuff works. It's it's really amazing to see, but we we essentially have to develop the detectors from scratch, um, and so that's a big task for fine for it. And I guess also uh, this also talks a bit to, to um, a question that one of my listeners uh, had. Uh, about this uh, interview that we that we're doing here, um, I asked uh, my listeners if they had any questions for you, and and one of them asked, uh, why do we need to have telescopes both on Earth and in space? And I guess you know, for a telescope in the far infrared, you really do need to send it to space, right? Yeah, you really, really, yeah, you cannot do anything. Yeah, you really, really need it from space. There's two reasons, right? One is the temperature, so you can't have a cold telescope on on Earth. Uh, but another bigger one is that far infrared light just does not go through our atmosphere. Uh, it gets blocked by the water in our atmosphere, and there's really nothing comes through at all. Um, uh, you have to go to um, about thir- 20, 30 kilometers altitude before you start to get far infrared light through. So it's, it's a possibility to do some far infrared work from, from high altitude balloons. That's, and that is being done. Uh, it has its own challenges, uh, but and you can't keep them cold uh, if it's a balloon. So really, you have to go to space, and you have to not only go to space, but you have to go far away from the Earth. Right? So that also means you have to go out to um, an orbit on the other side of the moon, like like uh, James Webb is. Um, and there's, uh, there's one or two other options for, for orbits that you can take that, that takes you far away from Earth while still being able to communicate. Um, so yeah, no, you can't do that from the ground. Um, X-rays is the same. X-rays you really, really can't do from the ground. Um, in the optical, of course, you can. Um, and and there are, that means, of course, there is some competition for something like Habitable Worlds, um, an optical space telescope. Um, uh, one, one thing I find absolutely mind-boggling is that the European Southern Observatory right now is building a 39-meter optical near-infrared telescope on the ground in Chile, 39 meters. So the biggest ground-based telescope under up until now is 10 meters. And so they're making a, a diameter four times bigger. Um, this is si- says the size of a cathedral. Um, and so um, it'll, it'll eat some of the signs that a six-meter space telescope can do. So that, that's another thing you've got to look at. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a extremely... I think it's called the extremely big telescope, isn't it? Or is that a, an upcoming one? Close, extremely large telescope. <laughs> extremely large telescope. They they have a good way with the names. Yeah. They had an earlier yeah. concept, uh, um, uh, which which I don't know if it was ever really serious, but they called it the overwhelmingly large telescope or OWL. <laughs> yeah. It was even bigger. But uh, you know, we I think we're happy with with the thirty nine meter telescope, and that is happening. I know they just. I saw they just received the first uh, mirror segments um, on the, at the telescope uh, just I don't know maybe a few weeks ago or something like. That. Do Do you have a snappy name for the uh, far infrared telescope? 
Um, yeah, the one we uh, uh, we submitted is called Prima. Um, so, and you can go, it has a website. Um, you can search Prima Far and Fred, and you, you'll find the website. Um, so, it's called, it stands for uh, Probe Infrared Mission for Astrophysics. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's not the only, like, there's, there's more, there's, there are other Far and Fred concepts that were submitted, and even more x-ray concepts that were submitted so um we can't talk too much about them i mean apart from what's on the website because they're in our competition right now uh, but hopefully there'll be a down select oh, there will be a down select um you know in the near future um then we can talk more about them and, and when would when would you know whether or not your telescope will be selected to actually be built and, and go to space um, so I, that is probably still an open question once you get down to that one selection. Um, this is a two-step process. Uh, so there's a down-select. Now, there's a lot of concepts going in. There's a down-select to a smaller number. We don't know how many. It could be two or three. Or, um, and then um, there will be then the final down-select sometime in the future. I mean, we are talking um, at least two or three years uh, before there's one, one left to actually be built. Just to uh, go back to the decadal survey, one thing I, I found uh, interesting uh, when looking at the topics uh, of the decadal survey, the topics of interest uh, to the scientist, is also the way that astrophysics and astronomy has evolved in terms of what kind of signals we are looking uh, for uh, in space. So uh, for a long time, for astronomers, uh, only really the, the optical Uh, light was was uh, what we were able to see and then came the infrared telescopes the x-ray telescopes and so on but recently also you've seen um, for instance the gravitational waves uh, the gravitational wave detectors uh, coming online um, and i saw ESA has just announced they're going to make a space-based uh, gravitational wave uh, detector uh, also called LISA uh, if i'm not mistaken Um, so there are all these new kind of signals uh, that astronomers are looking for, also neutrinos uh, and and other kinds of particles uh, from the universe. I think yeah, can you can you talk about what kind of a what kind of astronomy will be made uh, possible in the next ten uh, years uh, that you know the decadal surveys uh, foresees? Yeah, what 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 what, what would, can we expect from that? Yeah, yeah. So um, you're talking about what they uh, um, what they call TDAM uh, for short, or time domain and multi messenger astronomy. Multi messenger meaning not just electromagnetic radiation, not just light, but also gravitational waves and neutrinos. Um, they connect it to what they call time domain uh, because these tend to be traced by phenomena that uh, that are transient, that suddenly happen, right? So. We see gravitational waves from uh, neutron stars and or black holes um, that collide. Um, so, and these are these are stellar mass objects. The stars tend to form in 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 multiples and in binaries, and that is uh, doubly true for very massive stars that, at the end of their relatively short life, form uh, black holes and neutron stars when they die. Um, and so that you end up with these uh, these two black holes or two neutron stars, one neutron star black hole orbiting each other. And as they do that, because of uh, a detail in, in Einstein's general theory of relativity, they lose, uh, they lose energy uh, in their orbit. It gets radiated away by gravitational waves. But what happens is that that makes the orbit uh, move closer and closer to each other. And eventually they, they collide um, in an incredible, energetic, crazy kind of explosion, a merger. Um, and when that happens, then the whole the whole universe reverberates with uh, in, in gravitational waves. Basically, they distort space time, and this distortion uh, moves outwards at the speed of light, and it's big enough that we can detect it with a gravitational wave uh, detector. And so this was first seen um, in detectors on the, on on the ground on Earth. Um, uh, but you're much better off in space because even though these are incredibly energetic things that happen and Um, you still have to detect this vibration um, uh, at size scales of order of uh, 
of, uh, of atoms or even atomic nuclei. It's these are tiny, tiny little pieces of distortion. And so the stability of space makes that easier to do um, and much more precise. And, and, and so you can say much more about uh, that happen and, and you're much more sensitive to smaller events or more distant events. Um, and so that's what is being done with, uh, with, with Lisa. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's a really exciting new, um, um, uh, new angle to that. Um, you know, what, what are we going to do in the next 10 years? Well, I can tell you, I mean, what's going to happen in the next 10 years, right? We're not in the next 10 years. We're not going to be using a telescope that we're developing right now. We're going to be using existing telescopes and that's, uh, that's James Webb and that's, that's Hubble. Um, uh, the next telescope that will be launched is called the Roman Space Telescope, which um, you know, I, have, I have to check the exact time, but uh, I think launch is right now estimated to be 2027. Uh, the observatory is being integrated at the moment. Um, uh, Roman is, is a Hubble-sized telescope, but it has a much wider field of view, so it can take um, images that are 100 times bigger than Hubble. Um, and so that, that, uh, in doing that, it can use a special technique to, to actually tell us something about the structure of the, of the universe itself. And, and it can look for the effects of, uh, of what's called dark energies, so this mysterious energy that causes the universe to not only expand, but to, to accelerate. Um, so, so that'll be an exciting thing, I guess, within, within 10 years. Uh, and then the end of the decade, I, I hopefully we can get close to launching a probe, right? So the probe basically will be, um, you know, maybe a fine for one, uh, will be the the next general uh, significant space observatory after Roman, and then after the probe, um, hopefully we can we'll have something like the habitable worlds observatory, right? But I could be in the twenty forties even. It'll be very very exciting to uh, to follow along. Um, before I wrap up uh, the show for today, I'd like to share with you a quote from a speech that uh, I have recently been made aware about and been very fascinated with also. It's a speech given by the former NASA administrator Michael Griffin in 2007. And in the speech, he talks about the reasons we choose to go to, spe- uh, go to space. And uh, I'd like to read you uh, this quote from the speech. It is my contention then the, that the products of our space program are today's cathedrals. The space program addresses the real reasons why humans do things. It satisfies the desire to compete, but in a safe and productive manner, rather than in a harmful manner. It speaks abundantly to our sense of human curiosity, of wonder and awe at the unknow- unknown. Who doesn't look at a picture of the Crab Nebula, synthesized from visible light Hubble photographs and Chandra X-ray images and say, oh my God, who can look at that and not experience a sense of wonder? So my question to you, Klaus, is do you see yourself as a modern-day cathedral builder? Yeah, it's one of my my favorite uh, analogies. Um, I think the part, I think, uh, Griffin, there is, is in the quote is missing the key part of the cathedral. Like, why are we comparing this to cathedrals? We're comparing this to cathedrals because cathedrals were built over um, periods of a hundred or two hundred years, even. So the original builders and architects of a Gothic cathedral from the twelfth um, or thirteenth centuries knew that they wouldn't see their work finished. Nevertheless. They persisted and started, um, and that was true with Web. It's something I always say, uh, talk about when I talk about Web, is that I got into that mission sort of halfway through. I wasn't part of starting it, uh, but you know I took advantage and was able to finish something that somebody else had started, um, and hopefully the things that we start today, uh, in the future generations can can use even the fine thread. Mission is something, though it's a bit faster, um, I'm not going to be the one doing the science with it. Um, hopefully a new younger generation can do that. And so part of that is indeed, um, and we're doing this because somebody else did, did it for us in the past. So, so that I, as a, as a young researcher, could, could use 
a facility and discover new things because somebody else had a vision in the past. How does it feel just on a on a human human personal level to be part of a multi-generational project that literally is unveiling the you know the universe for before our eyes? I mean, I, I for me, it's a it's a reason for doing it you know, that that this, this is the case, right? Because we're leaving something behind um, that lives longer than us. You know, hopefully, you know, many years, maybe a thousand years. The the data, right, the images, the knowledge, the understanding of the universe. Uh, you know, once we gain that, it never goes away. It's it's stored on Earth long after we're gone. So it's a good feeling that to to be able to be part of something, leave something behind for uh, for future generations. Our lives are short, um, and um, you know we're trying not to not to waste them. Uh, to do something that's a little bit good somewhere. Um, I think knowledge about our universe, our place in it, is very fundamentally human. The search for that knowledge is very fundamentally human um and so we're trying to to give some of this to um to humanity um and so maybe take their minds off all the awful things that are happening in the world all the time i mean not least now uh, uh, all times terrible things happen um i think we should remind ourselves that you know we can do these good things too and we can we can work on building something that lasts for a long time, not just destroy it. On that note, Klaus, uh, thank you very much for enlightening me and the listeners about this uh, process of creating space telescopes of the future and uh, best of luck with uh, the competition. It'll be interesting to follow. Many thanks. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this uh, podcast. If you liked it, then uh, you might also like my interview with Casey Dreyer, Chief Space of the Poli- uh, of chief space of uh, sorry chief of space policy at the Pl- planetary society i talked with him uh, on the 12th of january about the reasons donald trump launched the artemis moon program and it was a fascinating conversation uh, and i think the key thing i learned about it was that the Tr- trump white house was very careful to make a program that would survive politically for many years in the future a bit like how also um, there's an attempt to make space telescopes that would be viable uh, politically and that would not be cancelled in the future. You can find it in uh, my podcast feed. And then a few words also in Danish uh, to my Danish listeners. Hvis du synes, den her samtale var spændende, så vil jeg opfordre dig til at dele den med andre, som også kunne synes, det ville være spændende at lytte til. Du må også meget gerne skrive en anmeldelse eller give podcasten alle de stjerner, du synes, den fortjener. Jeg har også et nyhedsbrev, som du kan abonnere på. Det hedder også Schumanns Rummarket, og det kan findes på Substack. Du kan også bare søge efter hjemmesiden schumannsrummarket.substack.com Ellers så kan du også følge mig på Instagram, hvor jeg også hedder Schumanns Rummarket. Thank you once again for listening. Ad Astra.